we talked to people who passed them on the way down and at least one of them the sherpa asked the person hey what time is it and he wanted the reason why he asked that question was because he wanted his clients these indian climbers to hear how late it was like just let me give you a different voice in your head that this is really late one of the topics that most people are immediately willing to jump in on is what should be done with the remains of the people who lose their lives high upon Mount Everest. It's a divisive topic and a lot of debate has ensued along the way in some of the stories that I've done on this channel. And recently I posted a poll. Do you think great expense and risk should be undertaken to remove bodies from Mount Everest? And the results, over 850 votes are in. And to be honest, I was quite surprised. I thought it was going to be more like 50-50. And the fact is that only about 12% believe, yes, whatever it takes, they should be removed. And 88% said, no, leave the bodies where they are. That's the jumping off point for this awesome story I have for you today. I have here today John Branch, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the New York Times who wrote an article in 2017 called Deliverance from 27,000 Feet. Now, why is that a story that I'd be interested in? Of course, well, it's Mount Everest. But poignantly, John Branch reached out to me early in 2017 because he learned from the Himalayan database that I had gone to the summit on the same day that three gentlemen from India lost their lives. Not coincidentally, I crossed paths with each of these gentlemen and as you might understand, having come into such close contact with three people who lost their lives, it's something that I think about every day. I ask myself, is there more that I could have done? What possible things might have changed to save the lives of these gentlemen who now are gone? So now let me bring you to this exceptional interview with John Branch from the New York Times who wrote the article, Deliverance from 27,000 Feet. And he went on to follow the story of the Indian government raising significant funds to go and remove the bodies of the gentlemen who were up on Mount Everest for a year and the difficulties that it presented, the risk, and also how it impacted the three families who were waiting at home. It's a fascinating story that dispels a lot of the myths about who actually climbs Mount Everest. You can't even imagine how many times I've heard on this channel, people who climb Mount Everest are rich. Well, believe it, this is not the case in this story. John brings sensitivity to this story while adhering to the facts. I know that you're going to enjoy it. But first, I want to thank the sponsor of today's video, Musa Masala. They're a 501c3 nonprofit organization creating an adventurous outdoor community focused on safe healthy culturally aware wilderness activities while prioritizing projects for healthcare and education in Nepal that includes dental and health clinics a climbing competition in Kathmandu every November student scholarships and financial support for the Wangchu Sherpa Memorial Hospital I've provided a link in the notes of this video so you can find out more about Musa Masala. They are awesome. Thank you Musa Masala for your support. 
support of Everest Mystery. Here's my interview with John Branch from his home in Northern California. Yeah, so that story came to me from an editor, and it was just nothing but a blurb. In this case, there was a news brief at the very end of the Everest season of that year that was maybe two paragraphs long that said these three Indian climbers um, had died on Everest, and their bodies were on the mountain, and they hoped to find them next year. And that was it. And so an editor said, is this interesting to you? <laughs> because it's just so plainly said that they're just going to, oh, they'll find their bodies next year. And I thought, what about those families? that don't know what's going on. How will they find their bodies next year? Who's going to find their bodies next year? Um, I just had a lot of questions about that. And I just thought it was so nonchalant and kind of dismissive. Like three three people died, their bodies on the mountain. They'll look for them next year. I'm like, eh, what, what can we do? Uh, so I thought there's a story behind those three names and that little blurb. The impermanence and the coldness of a body just being left behind on the mountain. It is, it really brings home the reality of it. So as a casual observer from the outside who has no idea of what Mount Everest is or anything like that, just that idea of a family being held in suspended animation, you know, just where is my loved one? Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. It, it is suspended, suspended animation. You know, I was haunted both by the idea that somebody, in this case, three people had died there and were just left. But then you start thinking about what what kind of uh, weight do the families have? And I didn't know if the families were expecting to have the bodies back, um, didn't know anything about the families. But I just thought, just to get a phone call, just to say, hey, we think they're gone and hey, we'll have to wait a full year or 11 months at least before we can kind of find you any answers, just really haunted me. And um, that's that was the genesis of the story. Mm. Yeah. And then you I guess you start to understand the cultural and religious significance of waiting, not that it would be easy for any human being to wait in perhaps any religion either. But at least in the Hindu religion, the, it's very important to, if you will, complete the cycle, if that makes any sense. Um, like it's not over until you get the body. It, it does. You know, it's interesting that you say this, Tom, because I'm working on another story that hopefully you'll read in the next couple of months that touches upon this about two people who died high on a, one of the world's great mountains. And one of the families really wanted the body back. And the other one just said, no, this is where she wanted to be. For these Indian climbers, there were three reasons why it was important for these families. You know, one was just the emotional we want this family member back. We want to give him a proper uh, send off. Part two is of that is the religious component of this. These were all Hindu families. They wanted the bodies back so they could be properly cremated, and so their their souls could be set free. And the third part was financial. You know, in the case of Gautam Ghosh, who was a police officer in Kolkata, he and that or that family would not get any of his life insurance benefits unless they had a body, because until there's a body, he's simply a missing person. And so there was a financial cost to them. And so for all these reasons, this family in particular really wanted the body back. One of the other families who had no financial stake in this and had zero money to put up to, for any sort of search or recovery basically told themselves, you know what, I think this is where he wanted to be. And that was their justification. They ended up getting his body back, but they were not going to put time, effort, and money into it. And it was because they had persuaded themselves that these would have been his wishes. Mm. 
Yeah, it brings up that whole misperception, at least uh, in some cases, that outside of it, a lot of people just say only rich people go to these mountains. But it's not true. Some people leverage their future, take out loans, borrow money from family. And in the case of these three gentlemen, it sounds like that was true. That was very much true. Um, Paris Nath was a one-armed tailor, one-handed tailor. He had lost his hand. And so he lived in this, in this pretty good-sized city of Durgapur in um, West Bengal, or the north east corner of of uh of india and was part of a climbing club and had always dreamed of going to mount everest and he lived in this kind of concrete home with concrete floors and concrete walls and there were two sewing machines in their living room one for him and one for his wife and they sewed bags and backpacks they sewed bags for a local grocery store out of cloth and i believe they were paid 23 dollars a month for that And then everything else was their effort to sell backpacks to people and their friends who climbed and so on. And on their bedroom wall was nothing except for a poster of Mount Everest. This was, this was the goal. Um, Don't know if they thought it would make him rich, but it would make him famous perhaps. Um, And it was, you know, it's not really that far to Nepal from there. So Everest sort of kind of feels like it's their backyard, even though it's a zillion miles away. I mean, at least um, it feels like a world away from where you are in some of these cities and towns in, in India. But he had very, very little money. Gautam Ghosh was a police officer in Calcutta, um, more middle class by those standards. But in American dollars, he was making about $500 a month. Um, so when you put that in the context of what some of these expeditions cost and where maybe people from the United States or, or Europe might be paying sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, or an expedition to Everest, that is a lifetime of work for these people. And so they are looking to cut corners. They are saving money for years and years and years. They are selling things off to to finance this one chance at, at climbing Mount Everest. It's so fascinating. And, and in terms of different cultures, but in the United States, well, in New Hampshire, only three people have climbed Mount Everest. So that's pretty cool, right? It's like, wow. You know, in the United States, I know dozens of people who have been there more than once even, you know, and summited numerous times. But in India, it's a little bit different. And you can almost understand why people would go out on a limb if they've gone through such extremes to get there. It's going to be pretty darn hard to turn them around. They've leveraged everything. And when they come back home successful, they there might be money, there might be a position waiting for them. It's different there. And so these people had a lot riding on the success of this expedition, it sounds like. Yeah, the closest comparison I can make, given my background as a sports writer, is the Olympics for a lot of countries. If you win a gold medal for your country, and not in the United States necessarily, but in smaller countries, you're kind of set for life. You're probably going to be handed some sort of reward. You're probably going to be handed some sort of government job. You're going to be famous. People will be buying you dinners for the rest of your life because you have honored your culture. You have honored your country. And that, to some extent, is how a lot of Indians view Everest. Um, It's a carrot for people who think, 
yes, this is a personal journey for me, but there's a reward for me and my family. I will bring honor to my family, if nothing else, but I also might bring money, stature, a job, a government job. Um, so these are all sort of in the background of their minds. These people had intended, I believe, to climb in Everest in 2014, if I remember right. Um, and that was the year, I believe, of the avalanche. And then they intended to climb in 2015, and that was the year of the earthquake and the avalanche. And so they had been waiting extra time as well. Um, so they were really anxious by 2016 to get this done. And they were not young. You know, I believe Supas Paul, one of the victims, was 44. I believe Ghosh was about 50. And Parish Nath, our, our one-armed tailor, was just 58 or so. So the, the, the clock was ticking for them for this chance. So what happened, just a really brief synopsis of, if you will, the day, the summit day, if you will. They're at Camp 4, 26,000 feet or 8,000 meters, ready to go. Just give me a quick synopsis of how shit hit the fan, if you will. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know the the, the place and the, uh, the procedures better than anybody. Um, but my recollection of this is that they got a late start. You know, a lot of people start first thing in the morning or in the middle of the night. They got a late start. The goal, at least for them, and at least back then, was you better be to the summit by noon. They got a late start. For some reason, one of their guys, one of their Sherpas, so there was four of them and four Sherpas, one of their Sherpas stayed in Camp 4. Don't know exactly why. So they were down a Sherpa already. And this group got to the balcony after dawn. Um, they were being passed by people coming down from the summit that day at 10 or 10.30 that morning, but they were still on their way up. Parrish Nath, our tailor, eventually turned down and went down. Two others, or three others, excuse me, all um, continued on up. And I think anybody who has any experience there would tell you, you do not continue up if you're not going to make it up there by noon. We talked to people who passed them on the way down, and at least one of them the Sherpa asked the person, hey, what time is it? And he wanted, the reason why he asked that question was because he wanted his clients, these Indian climbers, to hear how late it was. Like, just let me give you a different voice in your head that this is really late. And I imagine those Sherpas have been trying to convince them we should turn around. I know they had been, but these climbers wanted to keep going. And so then the Sherpas were now in this moral dilemma of, do I stay with them knowing this is a suicide mission in some ways, or do I turn around? How do I convince them to come down? Can I physically grab them? And so they were looking for people who were coming by to sort of be persuasive in these kind of hidden ways. Yeah. Hey, what time is it? It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Huh? It didn't persuade these people. They kept going. And so the whole thing fractured. Um, one of the three Indian climbers and his Sherpa, to the Sherpa's chagrin, continued on up ahead of the others. And it looks like he did make the summit. Um, the other two continued up, but were way far behind. And by that, eventually it was nightfall and they then finally started to try to come down and they got separated from Sherpas. And I believe, um, that night and early that next morning, the next day's group of climbers started to come up. And I believe you were the first of those. Yes. And, um, that is for sure. And so, which brings to a great point that, I am sure that because just the story I told you and the Sherpa that I was with, Lakpa, my friend Lakpa, even our stories, we were side by side, were different. And you don't have to go into the minutia of that either, but we were both right there. 
I remember talking to two people with Mr. Gosh. And he's like, no, there weren't two people with him. I'm like, oh my God, that's that's a big difference in a story. And it underscores just how much physical pressure, if you will, or extremes of altitude can really mess with your body and your mind. So I'm sure you were probably hearing all these stories. What am I supposed to write? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this comes up in, in quite a few stories that I do. Um, there's a little bit of a police investigation element to it. And if you don't know, you don't know. And so, as you say, especially when you're talking at 26,000 feet or whatever we're, we're talking about, um, and you're talking about the dark, and you're talking about people who are focused on, on saving themselves or getting themselves to the top. You know, there's a singular mission here. Yeah, so, um, so a year goes by, and uh, there's an expedition launched to go remove, retrieve, two of the gentlemen who passed away one made it back i believe the year before is that right yep yeah yep that's true Um, so it's no small feat to send a crew of people to go retrieve a body and i know that in the article that you wrote you said that by the time they got to uh, mr gosh's body with all the ice and blocks that had frozen into him he was 300 pounds frozen into a just one of the worst positions you could imagine for actually moving something. And that was double his weight anyway. So, so there, there's some controversy around it because there's risk, there's expense. You're putting other human beings in danger. So just expand, expand upon that just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, even stepping back a little bit is, is tricky because you had in this case, the Ghosh family that wanted the body back for those reasons. You had the other uh, family who had, convince themselves that it wasn't that important and we don't have the money for it anyway. So the Ghosh family spends a year trying to raise enough money and they are climbing the chain of command in the um, Indian government, the West Bengali uh, state government and the Indian national government saying, can you help us pay for this? And they kept saying, well, we can't even consider it until we know where the body is. And so they left the family really hanging there saying, well, in the meantime, we don't we think we know where the body is we're not exactly sure what we're going to find but we need to raise money so they spent a year raising money selling property um so that they could hire an expedition firm that would be willing to take those risks for a price we will go help we will go find this person we will bring him down you pay us this much up front you pay us this much if we find him you pay us this much when the body cuts down to Kathmandu. um so they were dealing with with all that eventually this the the first the team of the of rope fixers going up to the summit sees the body. So the reports come down to base camp. There is a body up here. And people presume this must be Gautam Ghosh. Great. Now the Indian government gets involved and says, well, if that's the body, then maybe we can help you. And so this whole year that the family went through of trying to <laughs> sell property and sell jewelry to try to raise money was kind of moot because then the government's like, oh, yeah, we can do that for you. We can help do that. And they suddenly start taking charge of the whole thing. And the family's like, well, that's great. But, you know, where have you been for the past year as we've been trying to figure out if this is even doable? And so the Seven Summits gets hired, which is a big expedition company there, right? Um, They get hired. And for a fee, they will, I think it was $80,000. They will bring down these two bodies. $80,000 is way more than these guys paid for the expedition in the first place. And so there's profit to be made to go get the bodies. And as you suggest, and as you say, rightly, that there's danger in this. 
because it's typically at the beginning of the season. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. You don't know exactly what you're going to find. And there's a huge logistical difficulty in bringing down a 300-pound body, chopping it out of the ice, trying to move it down, trying to bring it down on whether on sleds or whatever. And if you see the videos in the story of them doing this, even on like relatively flat pieces or, or portions of the trail, they're basically pulling this frozen contorted body over the ice. You know, they've strung the body up with a bunch of ropes and you're pulling them. And maybe you have some sort of plastic toboggan thing on the underneath them to try to protect them. But the, the jacket's getting all shredded. The body is being battered and they have to bring him all the way down to about camp two until they can uh, get the helicopters up there to, to then lift them down to base camp and then all the way eventually down to Kathmandu. It's a huge expense. It's a, it's, it is a risk. Um, and it, it's, it's not a dignified process. You know, I, it's, it's, it's a bunch of Sherpas hired to go find the body, to bring the body down so that you can have a, a burial. It's, tricky and expensive and risky to wrap this up a little bit um the end of the article if you ask me is brilliant it 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 you didn't i don't think you knew you were doing this but something in you the poignancy i believe the last line was something to the effect of so after all this after this after these two people go to these three individuals go to everest three years in a row lose their lives. Then the following year, bodies retrieve. Still on that wall in the room, there's a calendar on the wall stuck on May, 2016. Like, so there's lives just that will never be the same. And it's really sad. It is sad that his widow um, had refused to believe he, he was gone. And so for her, time was standing still. And it was evident by the fact that she was keeping her bangles on her wrist that showed that she was a married woman and not a widow. Um, the, the colors of everything, you know, the tandoor, um, the way she was dressing and so on. And also the calendar on her wall, which was set to May 2016. And she changed all the rest of it. She basically told the world, I am now a widow once they cremated his body that day. She immediately changed. But the one thing that didn't change was the calendar on the wall. And for her, that was the day the time stands still um, for a lot of the meaning in her life. So here's a question. Would your answer in the poll, is it worth the risk and expense to remove bodies from Mount Everest? Would your answer change? If you've enjoyed this video, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and also consider becoming a member for exclusive content. Thanks for being here. Do a kind deed. Take good care of yourselves. Have an awesome day, and I'll see you real soon.